Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis and this week I'll be talking about Labour's fortunes and housing with Caroline Crampton and George Eaton. Caroline will be talking to our contributor Rachel Cook about her book about the lives of women in the 1950s and Ian Steadman will be telling us all about why your next smartphone might come in bits. joined by George Eaton, editor of The Staggers, and our web editor, Caroline Crampton, to talk about the week in politics. George, you um, filled in for Raf this week on the political column, and you talked about this kind of the defining feature of politics at the moment, which is the argument about the macroeconomic picture, rising GDP, versus the kind of living standards and you know, the real economy. Um, how has that shifted recently, that debate? Well, what's interesting is that the, the Tories, despite the success of Miliband's price freeze and despite Labour's leader in the polls are quite confident because they think that eventually the increasing growth will feed into wages um, and and that they'll they'll benefit as a result. Um, you know, growth could be as high as 3% next year and Osborne's line is if the economy starts to grow then families' finances will start to grow. Labour's argument is that that link has actually been broken. I mean, They point to, um, when, when I speak to them, Ed Miliband's uh, team point me to the pre-crash period when you had growth, but people's wages were stagnating from around 2003 onwards. That's something that Gavin Kelly and the Resolution yeah. Foundation have talked about for quite a long time. It's not a it's not a new problem, is it? Yes, which makes it surprising that the Tories seem to be making the old assumption that a rising tide lifts all boats. Um, and and but are the polls shifting? So if you know now we're returning to to growth, fastest growth since 2010. Labour has still got a six point lead in the polls has that has that dramatically changed in the last month or two yes it has in well not not in the last month but if you compare it to last year for instance labor had a consistent double digit lead from the omni shambles period onward and that has changed and the tories poll ratings have have improved with the rise in consumer confidence but i think there's only i think there's quite a, a low ceiling on the tory vote i don't think the the new voters that they need to overtake Labour are, are, are out there at the moment. And then we talked to you, wrote, wrote, I thought, a very interesting blog about the idea about the Lib Dems actually being kind of... It, it helps the Tories if the Lib Dems mm. shift to the left because there are so many Tory Labour marginals in which you know a mass defection of the Lib Dem vote would hand it to Labour, essentially. Is there any evidence of that happening in the Lib Dems? 
Clegg, Clegg certainly, his rhetoric on, on free schools has been interesting because he can't change the policy now, but he's saying this is what we would do um, after 2015. And it's a, it's, a, it's a signal to the Lib Dem base, which is quite committed to the comprehensive model of education that, look, I'm not entirely comfortable with goes revolution. So there is some of that. But crucially, Clegg is going to remain leader. And so you're not going to have a situation where some a more left-wing alternative like Vince Cable or Tim Farron takes over. And that, that does help Labour. I mean, as I point out in the column, the swing from the Lib Dems to Labour is actually greater than the total swing to the Tories of 97 to 2010. Yeah, which, sorry, Caroline. You were um, so surely it's if you can, if one can express sympathy for Nick Clegg, he is in a more difficult position than the other two leaders, in that he he's got to kind of play both sides in the run up to the election. He can't, as Ed Miliband can, just put out a manifesto and say this is what we stand on, take it or leave it. He's got to say this is our manifesto. Caveat: if it's in conjunction with the Conservatives, it will look it will change in this way. If it's in conjunction with Labour, it will change in this way. And all you get is a big muddle that's very hard to communicate and thus very hard to vote for, I would say. I think that's going to become a really interesting issue in the next 18 months is the idea about, no, but what's your real manifesto? Yeah. The idea of, because mm, exactly. no party wants to say, well, these are, this is, you know, these are our red lines, as they call them. This is what actually we really are wedded to. Everyone is going to give you that thing. And you know, Nick Clegg already does this, so kind of like, but I'm, I'm delivering a Lib Dem mm. manifesto as if I were being prime minister. And, you know, you kind of go, well, I think it's quite unlikely, Nick, actually. Um, so, yeah, it's, I think that is going to become a kind of, a, not just for the Lib Dems, I think. I don't know what you think about this, George. Is That's, that's a tricky for, for Labour and, and Tory to sort of signal what things that would be horse tradable and what things they are actually really committed to. It is really tricky because, of course, as... Um, Nick Clegg found out with tuition fees and Obama found out with Syria. Drawing red lines in advance is a risky strategy because the danger is that they're, they're crossed and then the consequences of going back uh, back behind the line seem, seem, worse than, seem worse than pressing on. So perhaps then um, Ed Miliband's, what we can maybe look back on now as his strategy of laying kind of intellectual principles rather than specific policies in the last couple of years is better in the sense that even if you then have to adjust the fine details you can at least point to well this is what I said I believed in and I still believe that mm. um, is that a safer I also think the other thing that it's very hard to take account of is, is simply events I think that the, the way that we talk about the free schools policy for example has changed inarguably in the last three weeks not just because of Tristram Hunt replacing Stephen mm. Twigg at education but also because of the failure of Al Medina and those two resignations of um, head teachers who were essentially parachuted in um, and and then you know I couldn't actually it turns out manage a school which was one of the things that people had always pointed out as being a potential problem with free schools you were having um, little control I mean essentially only Ofsted control and then the Secretary of State not having local authority control right. so that's another thing that's almost impossible for for pundits like us to price in is a is a very big flagship failure of something like that one thing I wanted to ask you about George because this fascinates me is why isn't Ian Duncan Smith getting more stick over welfare reforms being quietly on universal credit, yeah. I think the idea, I think the answer to that is that it's a very complex and technical reform, and so it, it doesn't have much cut through beyond Westminster. I think the point at which universal credit could have become uh, a national story rather than a bubble story would have been had it been rolled out and people's benefits weren't paid or the wrong amount were paid, um, and then they can't afford their their weekly food or their their, their monthly mm. energy bills but because they've limited it to a thousand claimants so far yeah. um it hasn't uh, it hasn't stung duncan smith i so i think they've made the choice between where well, we could have 
gone for a big bang revolution and had a car crash on our hands instead we're just going to um you know act uh, act uh, to limit the damage but again it's one of the sort of stories of the latter half of this parliament which is the kind of the kind of in almost George Osborne, a lot of his gambles paying off, and a lot of his decisions becoming more kind of you know more returning into received wisdom because he was a bit cold on Ian Duncan Smith for a long time, wasn't he? He was sort of neutral, wasn't he? He didn't, he didn't, he didn't do photo ops shaking his hand, but neither did he condemn. Yes, him. I mean Osborne sees welfare in political terms. Really, it's quite a useful stick to bash uh, Labour, the Welfare Party, with. Mm. He doesn't have the same vision of a transformed system that, that that Ian Duncan Smith had um, you know, when he was... Um, in his Easter House epiphany. It, yes, exactly. Um, and one finally, one thing I want to talk about is, is housing, which I think is becoming a really interesting policy area now. So George Osborne has this morning announced that he's thinking about an idea about capital gains tax on foreign investors buying up new homes. Now, we know that was, I think it was 70% of new builds went to foreign investors. Um has George Osborne accidentally done a good left-wing progressive thing? I think he has. And actually, quietly, he's already been doing quite a lot on this front. So he introduced capital gains tax on properties owned by foreign companies and slapped a stamp duty rate of 15% on them. And the Treasury have been pleasantly surprised by how much revenue that's raised. It doesn't seem to have put off foreign investors because you know, the London housing market is still a great safe haven for them. So they think they can squeeze more revenue out of them. And also, of course, it's great politics. I mean, this is an increasingly resented group, not least because a lot of them don't actually live in those homes. They it's also a group of people out. who don't vote. So yes. <laughs> in some sense, if you've annoyed them, then, well, you know, deal with it. Um, but, um, I mean, where do you th- I mean, do you think this would a policy like this would have a, a demonstrable effect or will it just get more money for the Treasury? Yeah, I think they'll, they'll raise a couple of hundred million from it. It's, But it, I think it's more the, the more the symbolism. So while Osborne hasn't really lived up to the original We Are All In This Together slogan, he has, you know, he, he does like bashing what is now seen as the undeserving rich. So they are, they, they are prepared to raise taxes on foreign property owners, on, on, on bankers. And and then also on uh, and while also hitting benefit claimants and, and public sector workers, which is where they think Labour is weak. Mm. Um, and Caroline, I mean, how do you think Labour can respond to it to a policy, or um, you know, a, 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 if that were the policy, how how could they kind of win the initiative back? It's very difficult. They're almost in the situation that they themselves put the Tories in with the energy price freeze, in that it's a sort of unarguably good idea. Um, you can pick at the details of it, but ultimately the person suggesting it has owned the argument. So I think it has to be, it has to turn back in on the Tories politically. It has to be, well, aren't you part of this undeserving, mm. undeserving rich class that's taking this away? You know, Labour would do this and more across the board. Our whole programme is designed for this. We're not just picking off the cherries. I guess the problem that they've got is that actually you can imagine Labour nicking that policy quite happily, whereas the thing about the energy price freeze was it was intervening in markets. It was very hard for the Tories. It was very socialist. It was very socialist, they thought. But I suppose that the argument you make is maybe the one that George outlines, which is mm. the idea that actually it doesn't stop those foreign investors. It just gets you more money. So you're you know, one good thing, but equally well, it's not addressing the fact that you are getting a generation of young people who are getting older and older as they buy. Um, On that note, I think I'll probably leave you. Thank you very much to George and Caroline.
I'm here with Rachel Cook, who is our TV critic, but also the author of a brilliant new book called Her Brilliant Career, which is about the lives of 10 women who lived and worked in the 50s. And Rachel is going to tell us a little bit about how she arrived at such a subject. Well, um, this is true. I got the idea from a piece of uh, furniture. Uh, I bought a sideboard on eBay. I'm very keen on 50s furniture Mm. and I got myself a massive bargain. It was only £79. And um, it was made in about 1954. And when it arrived in my house, I couldn't get over how sort of timelessly modern it looked. Mm. And that was at about the same time that Mad Men was on the telly. And the expression, it's just like the 50s, was becoming a pejorative for anything that was bad Mm. and connected to women. And the two things seemed to me to be intention. You know, because... Given that very often it's the women that choose the interior furnishings, <laughs> not that I want to be sexist in that way, but, but it's get, true. yeah, it's, it's true. true. I thought, well, there must have been a whole load of women who identified themselves as in some way modern. They wanted mm. this groovy furniture, and I thought, I wonder if they were all housewives. Surely not. So I just set out to find a group of women, and I set myself a target of ten, but in the end. You know this. I ended up with more than I uh, could use, really. Mm. And they they found themselves in competition, and I threw a a few people (laughs) out. I had planned to devote a whole chapter to Lucien Day, the designer. Oh, right. Um, But she fell out, really, because... um, her life just wasn't extraordinary enough. (laughs) So I got ten of them, Mm. and they're all, you know dramatically modern in the sense that they had pioneering work lives and pioneering private lives and each one of them has a different profession so I've got a gardener and an architect and a lawyer and a cook and so on and if you read them all then hopefully you'll see the 50s in a new Mm. and altogether cooler way. That's definitely how I felt when I read it and it was Interesting, because you say in your introduction that it's not quite a group biography, no. because these women didn't all know each other. I'm not sure, did any of them know? They sort Few of, of yeah, did. Ten, very, oh, yeah. you know, in the way that famous mm. people do know one another, in the same way that Stephen Fry waves across the room at, exactly. you know, David yeah. Mitchell. They knew each other like that. Yeah. Um, but they're not, it's not like, um, I recently read a proper group biography of the Bloomsbury set, yes. which was all the people yeah. did know each other, they lived together, all that kind of thing. It's not like that. They're more sort of interconnected essays. Yes, that kind of yeah, thing. I love essays anyway because I figure that if you are bored with something you can move on to the next one (laughs) and what I would say to people is if you don't like gardening you don't need to read the chapter Mm. about gardening I mean hopefully I can make gardening interesting I'm not a gardener myself so hopefully but if you don't like gardening then you can move on and read about something more exciting like the law or but there's also I think even if you I don't know much about gardening either but I really really like the chapter Marjorie Fish um not necessarily because she was a gardener but because of what the rest of her life was like so how she did have a sort of mad men feeling yes. life in that she started out as a secretary yes, at the Daily right. Mail and she ended up marrying the editor um, and then when they retired to the country she yeah. got in this garden um, and that for me that felt like mad men but crucially so different yes. in that she had control and she was making decisions yes. even within the structure yes. of this I mean I think that marriage in particular was a very pragmatic marriage. Mm. She She's the oldest woman in my book, so she had already survived two world wars by the time she got married. And um, 
you know, I don't suppose that she was madly in love with Walter Fish, her mm. husband. Um, my guess is, well, her nephew told me he didn't think they were madly in love. Mm. But he was a, a, a widower. And I think she wants, I think she was tired of being a secretary. And mm. who can blame her? Not at all, yeah. So she got married. But like all of the women in my book, they're sort of like rats going up drain pipes or something. They're really pragmatic. And any little chink, any little gap, any little opportunity, they take it. Mm. And that was her opportunity, you know, and she took it. And then Walter died. I'm sure she was sad about that, but she, she may also have been <laughs> relieved. <laughs> and that gave her the chance. Then she was kind of the queen of this empire that they'd built, which was a lovely house and a garden. And she became, you know, really famous just from writing gardening books. It, and that is cheering, you're mm. right. Absolutely. And I, I do like what you say about they, they seized every little opportunity. And if there's a sort of message of the book yeah. overall, perhaps that's it. Yeah. To kind of take your chances where you may. Yes, and don't... One of the reviewers, one of which I did not like, said, <laughs> um, you know, that she was... She seemed to be irritated by the fact that a lot of the women, um, not all, but some of them, had been helped along the way by husbands or various relatives. And I don't see it like that at oh. all. I think then, you know, your options are limited. So if a man says to you, do you want to do this? You know, it may be annoying that they're patronising you in that way, but still, say yes, say mm. yes. And I don't, in a way, I don't think that that has changed because um, the book is about the 1950s, but it, I wanted always to try and connect it to now. I've tried to bring every chapter at the end to now because I think things are bad for women now. And when people say it's like the 50s, I sort of know what they mean, mm. in the sense that, you know, the apogee of achievement seems to be being on the Great British Bake Off, which <laughs> is not my idea of <laughs> achievement. And um, and I, w I would like people to read it, not just as a history book, but as a book that is like a sort of, um, you know, it's a rallying cry, really. You know, look what these women did. It was hard for them. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. But look what they did. So don't get down in the dumps when things aren't going your mm. way. Things may change, you know. I, I, want it, I want it to be a cheering book. That's not to say it's not serious, because to me mm. it is serious. But I want people to read it and think, I can do anything, really, you know, mm. or at least a dream. Yes, and that feeling that you don't have to wait for someone to open the door for no. you. You can sort no. of just walk through it yes. without having to wait for permission. I think that's that's a very, very important yes. thing. I mean, they, they did, they did, it's interesting because the 50s, this is a time before the women's magazines have become what they are now. So they don't have guilty feelings because they haven't been taught to be guilty. Mm. I feel yeah. that guilt is often something that's sort of put on you. So they, they didn't have that. 
that that allowed them to you know operate in a much more free way in a in a way mm. even though everything was so repressive in other ways um and also they don't have any role models so they can just sort of be who they are and get on with it mm. this is a book about really stoicism in a way it's, you mentioned that you ended up with you were surprised mm. that you ended up with so many more mm. to choose from. How did you go about finding them? Because, I mean, I'd only heard of a couple of them. Yeah. And judging by the other reviews, yeah, similarly, yeah. people had only come across a few of them. Um, I read a couple of the big books. I read David Kynaston's brilliant books about the 50s, and he mentioned two of them. He mentioned Marjorie Fish, the gardener, and he mentioned Sheila Van Damme, who's one of my favourites, mm. who was a rally car driver, and then she ran the Wimble Theatre in Soho. Um but most of the books, I must admit, just had, um, they had lots of bits about mass observation and those women are mostly office workers or mm. secretaries or housewives. Um, so how did I find them? Um, well, it was a bit like a string of beads. One le often led to another. They sort of come in groups, some yeah, of them, don't they? Yeah, yeah. Um, I was, I looked up Sheila Van Damme and I started researching her life and it became apparent to me that she had been in love with this woman called Joan Werner-Laurie, who was the editor of She magazine, which then was taboo-busting. And Joan was the partner of Nancy Spain, who was this marvellously camp detective novelist and columnist at The Express. And those three lived together. So I found them through each other. Mm. Um, I read a couple of very useful books about films in the 50s, and that was how I got Muriel Box, the film director, and her sister-in-law, Betty, who was a producer. So I did a lot of kind of reading. I read a lot of really boring um, mm. um, academic books where there was interesting things buried deep inside a lot of theory. I thought that was... I got the sense <laughs> that was the case particularly about Jaquetta Hawkes. Yes. Because yes. I imagine she gets... I don't know, but I imagine she gets written about quite a lot yes. in relation to J.B. Priestley. Yes, she does. But not so much for no. herself. Jaquetta Hawkes was an archaeologist and she... She caused a bit of a scandal by running off with J.B. Priestley and he was then, you know, a bit like Winston Churchill, he was sort of national treasure. And um, and I think, you know, when she died, all of the obituaries were kind of like J.B. Priestley's wife um, rather than writing about what she had done. She, she had, ha you know, she had had an amazing career. She'd written a book called A Land, which was a huge bestseller in the 50s and is a book that lots of um, the new na nature writers mm. now are keen on. Robert McFarlane's very keen on it. And she's kind of the godmother of all of these young men. Um, but she was, yeah, she was in lots of books about Priestley. So I had to somehow... Mm pull her out of that. Um, I went to the Priestley Archive, which is in Bradford, and I spent a few days there and I'm looking at, you know, what scant things there were, but he had told her to destroy all of their letters, oh. all of her letters to him. Um, sorry, all of his letters mm. to her. So there weren't... A lot of the, the letters were, were not there, but I, I interviewed her son and various people. I mean, I, a lot of what I found out was from interviews because mm. that's what my day job is and I'm I'm quite good at um, persuading people to tell me things they don't really want mm. to reveal. <laughs> <laughs> 
so a lot of it was based on interviews and I you know I'm hugely grateful to the families that cooperated all of them did with one, one exception mm. and I think that's what makes it as you say something a bit more than a history book yeah. is that you do feel like you're you're discovering you're not just rehearsing things that you could yeah. find elsewhere you're... and also it's interesting to talk to the children because they were the prototype latchkey kids mm, of course um, so it's interesting to find out how they felt about having working mothers and all of that and I was surprised actually because some of them I think had had a hard time mm. some of them had really come to celebrate their parents and were incredibly sort of proud and proprietorial mm. even though they had had you know great trials um, like Patience Gray who's the cook in the book you know her children she once made them hitchhike back from um, I think they were in Italy she just they back went, to London yeah <laughs> She made them hitchhike back because her, her, I think her boyfriend had turned up and she, she, she didn't fancy, you know, <laughs> having them around. Having them around, so she gave them a tenner and said, "Make your way back to London." Um, and they had to hitchhike because they didn't have enough money. <laughs> <laughs> so it was interesting, but you know, they were really proud about her, even though they mm. had, could understand that it had been not a typical childhood. Some of them, I think, had hated it at the time, but you know what it's like. As an adult, you can be more appreciative mm. of how wonderful it was. So the Smithsons' children, Alison Smithsons, the architect, I think they'd had quite a hard time when they were children because they had been so different. Their house looked different, mm. their furniture looked different, their clothes were different. But as adults, they were really, um, really proud. And, of course, her son is a great architect in his own right and designed... Must design marvelous airports and all sorts of things. So, a few of them have come back mm. around. But I, w I was interested to see that, and I think that's an important part of the book, because that's another thing about today that women are always being kind of punished with their own children. Yes. And um, I wanted to make it clear that sometimes, you know, things go wrong, but sometimes things go right if you're a working mum mm. and your children are a bit farmed out or whatever and I you know I don't I don't want to judge the thing I really hate is all this judgment and I've tried to be really even in my book you mm. know to, to 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 show all the bad things but but never to say I think this you know I think she shouldn't have done this or because it's I just hate that yes yeah, so like the example of um, Muriel Box whose husband it turned out been having a string of affairs and he was devastated and all the rest of it at no point do you feel like you were saying well if only she'd done x y and z yeah, this would have yeah. happened it just poor happened. muriel i mean i read she, that was all in her diaries which are at the bfi on the south bank and there's a huge volumes of them and i read them all and i began to feel really depressed as i read them because she was often depressed i kept having to rush out and eat cake <laughs> um but it's so sad because she, you know, she, she's her life, her entire life has been built around Sydney, mm -hmm. her husband, who was a famous producer, and then she finds out that her marriage is basically a sort of sham, and he's he's a real slime ball actually. <laughs> but you know, I, I don't think I don't think she should have done any different because she wanted to make movies mm. and and they did make movies they together, made yeah. movies, and he yeah. lied for her. He would tell the. Um, the studios and the you know the people who are putting the money in, he'd say, "Oh, I'm going to direct it." And then on the first day of shooting, you know, Muriel would emerge and <laughs> say, "Right, everyone, positions, please." Mm. 
and you know it was she was the director so he he had helped her and in a way they had had a wonderful life together it was just you know if she hadn't have found out she probably would have carried yeah. on with her blissful life so mm. poor muriel mm. Well, we don't want to leave it on a downer. That, no. That is a sad story, but it is, in general, as you say, a very uplifting yeah, book. Yeah. I found it. And, uh, yeah, I'd urge you to get hold of it. Thanks very much, Thank Rachel. Thank you. I'm here with Ian Stedman, our science and tech writer on the website, who is going to tell us about a very exciting new concept in phones. Mm. So this, Ian, this is about how it, when your phone breaks or it starts running a bit more slowly or it isn't as good as you'd like it to be, rather than having to face up to the fact that you're going to have to stump up for a new phone, you could do what people just used to do with computers, which mm. is replace the bit that's not working. Yes, because okay. um, at the moment, if your phone breaks, say your uh, iPhone screen breaks, you have to go to the Apple Store and they'll give you a new phone. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, they'll recycle the components in that phone, but, I mean, you can't just open it up and put a new screen in you can't do that they're just not made like yeah that. and you yeah. can't do it with any phones um which is kind of strange if you think about it because old computers um that that kind of goes very much against how old computers used to be you could open up anything put a new hard drive in you could put a new processor in all kinds of stuff um there was this viral video that went around from a dutch group called phone blocks and it went around about a year ago now mm, yeah. yeah um and it kind of came with this clever idea where uh you have sort of a a central core exoskeleton or endoskeleton or something, whatever they called it, um, on one side it has holes in it, so on one side you can clip on the screen, on the other side you can clip on a battery, uh, camera, lens, uh, microphone, speakers, all the stuff that is in the phone. But the idea is that you can take out any one of those individual components and pop it back in. Mm-hmm. So um, you'd re- uh, they were proposing it as an environmental measure because it means that you don't have all this perfectly good stuff going to waste. You only have to upgrade one thing at a time. You don't have to worry about um, throwing away stuff that's going to go into a landfill somewhere or is going to be shipped off to China or India and be broken down by small kids in, in very horrible uh, situations. Um, but instead, you will be able to just upgrade gradually, uh, reducing waste and actually being cheaper. And they also tried to make the case that this meant you could customise the phone so the same yeah. phone would work for lots of different people who had different usage so yeah. that if you were someone who was really into photography you could upgrade your camera module to a better one or mm. if you just like I'm someone who really just uses my phone to make phone calls I don't do anything else with it I could just have a massive battery pack yeah, exactly. and thus get really long life because I didn't need any of the other gadgets um, which sounds like a very seductive idea but it's perhaps not as simple yeah, as it seems well, um, the, in the video that they produced it was um effectively you could put everything into the phone in any kind of um, combination on, on, on the back and engineering wise that's an extremely difficult thing to imagine you'd probably just short your components out if you just you can't just stick stuff together with wires and hope that it'll work you have to plug it in in certain motherboard situations where you'll be able to talk to each other um, and where the software will, will be able to communicate with it um, so what most roller has done um, is they've announced that they've been working on this secretly for a while as well. This they, modular phone idea. Yeah, yeah, they called it Project ARA, A-R-A, um, and it's slightly different. I mean, it's the same basic modular concept. Um, you have a sort of a skeleton that all the stuff goes into with a screen on one side and a component uh, sort of boxes on the back. But um, all the component sections are sort of the same size, yeah. so you don't have the thing like you couldn't with this. You couldn't put a big battery in, but yeah. like, you couldn't choose to do that. Um, 
excuse me. <laughs> uh, but what you could do is um, choose the bigger lens mm. in the camera, as you say, or you could probably put more memory in. Mm. That's like the most obvious one. Um, and also it does have that benefit of reducing waste. Mm. as, well as um, And they're actually, they've said they're going to work with Phone Blocks, which is quite interesting because mm. Phone Blocks is a non-profit organisation in the Netherlands, which is funded entirely by donations. Um, so, And they just want to raise awareness about yeah. how you can stop waste for these kind of exactly. technologies. And Motorola is going to work with them, but they'll stay a separate organisation. So what, what's Motorola up to here? Because the last time, if I'm honest, I was aware of Motorola was way back when I first had a phone. Um, and I think I had one of those kind of clamshell flippy phones. The, flip, the Motorola um, Razr, which yeah, was Yeah, I think one. I yeah. had one of those, um, which is really the last time I had contact with Motorola. Um, well, Motorola kind of... They're still around, but they got bought by Google mm. um, within the last year, which was a big thing because Google, obviously, they have Android, which is the world's most popular smartphone OS. Um, and you can think of it kind of being a bit like Windows and Microsoft. Mm. Uh, Microsoft um, had Windows, and the reason Windows was so successful was because you could install it on any computer and you could customize your hardware however you wanted. But uh, Microsoft had this software that you could use on anything. Like Apple's um, Macs were always seen as better to use and stuff, but they were they were limited. You could only have one kind of Mac at a time, and that's because Apple likes to control the hardware and the software. Um, and what Google's done is they've controlled the, the the software for so long. But now they want the hardware bit as well. Mm. They want to. They're kind of looking to um, solidify their grip, as it were, on on hardware in the same way that they've done it with software. And I think they see this as a possibility. I mean, most people haven't said anything like this is definitely coming out here or even if it's definitely coming out at all mm. it seems to be more of a re- experimental research project and um if for this kind of thing having google's backing is exactly the kind of thing you want mm. you really. need a really big company behind yeah. it with and i suppose because i think i'm right in saying the android operating system they just gave that out to manufacturers they did that was open use. that was so open, htc samsung all use it just based on linux which is um you know the open source uh os and they uh, gave out Android, and that's why it's so popular, it's because it works on every phone, and anyone can use it and adapt it and yeah. change it however they want. Um, they've actually started withdrawing that now because um, uh, they they like to have control over certain things, some of the apps like Maps and things like mm. that, and Mail. Um, so it's not quite as open as it used to be, but it's still very popular. Um, but you can see some of the kind of thing happening with Microsoft. Microsoft have are trying. To, have they bought? I think they're in the process of buying Nokia mm. um, because they want. They have Windows Phone. No one's buying Windows Phone for their phones. So what they need to do is get a very big manufacturer like Nokia, who they'll own. They'll control the hardware and they'll control the software and they're trying to mimic Apple. Mm. Um, but what Google's trying to do is something a bit more strange and different. And it'll be very yeah. interesting to see how this works. Because it feels a little bit like they're trying to do what they've done with Android, but yeah, with hardware. Exactly. By collaborating through Motorola, by collaborating with people like yeah. Roblox, trying to get that kind of... Um, open source free internet feeling mm. into there's a suggestion that you'd be able to like 3d print your own parts and stuff like that i don't know how feasible that would be but if it is the case that you could like you could literally put in any kind of you could solder some components yourself and plug it in mm. that makes a smartphone a very powerful piece of kit mm. that you can customize uh more like a, a you know an old computer rather an old in old school style mm. computer rather than the smartphones they are today which are quite tightly controlled mm, very interesting thanks very much Ian. you've been listening to the new statesman podcast you can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast on our website you can also download the magazine on ipad or iphone